in a trial involving self-represented litigants. My expectations are low. All that I ask is that they be clothed. If they can fake civility toward each other and pretend to be respectful of the court, that is a merciful bonus. Quoting Shakespeare, the merchant of Venice, the court went on to say, it's quite amazing that a marriage that lasted 14 years, one would have thought that the weakest kind of fruit drops earliest to the ground. Those are quotes from Justice Quinn after conducting trials. This is the Family Law Now podcast. Welcome, I'm Russell Alexander. Today's topic is going to be trials. We have with us Nafisa Nazarelli, mom, uh, charitable board member, and managing associate of this firm. Welcome, Nafisa. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We also have with us today uh, seasoned litigator Jason Eisenberg. He's a bit of an in-house celebrity, and I understand you've had another grandchild since our last podcast. Yeah, yeah, I've got two now, so it's uh, it's all been very exciting. Congratulations! Thank you very much. What's the name? Uh, Grayson is the boy's name. The girl is uh, Ren. Wow! Yeah, fantastic. Congratulations! Thank you. So, just before we begin, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit about trials from my perspective. So when I meet a new client, I'm already thinking, what is the final order going to look like? What is a judge going to want to see after hearing four or five days of evidence? What kind of case am I going to need to prepare uh, for that trial and for that trial judge? And then sort of coach and advise the client in terms of conduct and strategy throughout the course of the file. When it's actual trial time, what I like to do is prepare a draft order with everything that we're seeking, and that's going to be the start of the trial, and that's going to be the trial judge's roadmap. So that's generally how I like to start trials. But how about you, Jason? What do you think of trials when you first meet a client? Well, I think you know the only thing you have to uh, um, be aware of is that uh, trial prep can start any time. Like, unfortunately, we have to think of the worst case scenario. So. Um, that could mean that you are always preparing for trial, so to speak. Um, and, you know, along the way, you're also thinking of settlement. I think that we try to, our first job is to settle files, not do trials. Though some of my colleagues uh, in the Greater Toronto Area disagree okay, with me. podcast is on yeah. trials, not That's settlement. True. Come on, okay. you're throwing us off. That's true. But in any event, I think that, you know, you have to understand that, you know, the preparation starts right away. You never know what you need or what you don't need. And, uh, always be preparing for that worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts, Nafisa? I completely agree with uh, with you, Russ, that um, you know the trial prep really starts at that first initial meeting with the client. Um, you're, you're basically building your case from the first time you meet your client throughout all the conferences as well as um, through all the, the offers to settle. You're really trying to get to trial with the minimum amount of issues to litigate. So for me, trial prep does start right away. Um, I start thinking of strategies, I start thinking of witnesses, I start thinking about the evidence, I start thinking about whether my client will be a good witness. So those are all things that are in my mind uh, throughout the file. So oftentimes we have clients come in and and we see this a lot. They want to know, when's my trial going to start? When am I going to see the judge? Mm -hmm. When am I going to have my trial? So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, clients always want their their day in court. Um, And and I think that it's important for them to understand that uh, it's a wrong process to get there. Um, And it's really, it's it's one of those things where only 3% of cases do go to trial. And and as a lawyer, it's it's our job to sort of 
um, you know, narrow the issues as much as possible and explain the process, explain to clients that you don't hire a lawyer and go to trial the next day. Sometimes it can take up to two years to get to a trial. And we're in a unified family court, Absolutely. so trials don't happen every week. There's something called trial sittings. Right. So what's that? When do they occur? So trial sittings uh, usually occur about twice a year. Um, in Ontario, it's uh, in May and November. Um, and the trial sittings are usually about three weeks long. Uh, you can get called at any point within those three weeks. So you could get called the night before or you can get called, you know, two weeks into the trial sittings. Um, and you have to be prepared um, from the start of the trial sittings to be called at any point thereafter. Do the clients need to show up? What, what, do they have to show up or what's happening here? Well, yeah, I mean, I know the lawyer is the person you hire and the lawyer is the person that you think will... Uh, um, will do the trial for you, but you have a role too as a client. You're not just a, um, a, you know, someone that's just watching a spectator. Um, you're going to have to instruct your, your, your lawyer. You're going to have to tell them, okay, you know, this is what um, you need to know if someone says something that wasn't their life. They didn't live that life. They don't know if some fact that's said is 100% accurate. You may be able to assist them with that. You're also a witness. You're telling your story. Uh, a lot of the times the evidence is not, uh, you know, I've got this piece of paper that I want the judge to see. It could be, I have a story I want to tell and the judge needs to hear my story. And the judge is going to say, look, you know, I think your story was very believable and you're the one I'm going to listen to and not the other person. So you've got that role. Um, as well, look, if you don't show up, no one's going to think you really care about it. So you got to be there. you got to be there to say, I'm interested. I'm, I'm waiting. Uh, I've been waiting a long time. I'm, this is very important to me. Uh, and, you know, you got to make sure that there's that perception, those, where we use optics, that you're interested. Um, and, you know, I think as well, uh, there may be talk about settlement. Uh, and you don't want to talk about settlement, Russ, but, you know, sometimes there's settlement. And that can happen anywhere during the trial. Like Nafisa said, we will have a podcast on settlement, I <laughs> promise right. well, you. And, 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 you know, maybe I'll, I'll skip that one. But anyway, so we talked all about settlement all here. But Nafisa said 3% of matters go to trial. And, you know, they don't all finish. Mm -hmm. So there's even less people that actually finish the trial when you think about it that way. And that's why you need to be around for settlement. Your lawyer can't settle the file for, for you um, if you're not there to tell them what you want or you like what's being offered or you want to make a counteroffer. And there's, there's just a, a big, big role for the client to play there. You are not just a spectator, you're a participant as well. What's the difference? You know, we use fancy language. What's the difference between viva voce evidence and affidavit evidence? Well, viva voce is out loud. Um, you're speaking it. Um, affidavit is written evidence. And they're both considered to be true. Um, so, you know, when you're saying something, everyone knows you go in there and you swear in your stack of Bibles or whatever else you have. And that is a, a way for a judge to say, okay, this person's telling the truth. And an affidavit is sworn to be true. And it's, it's, it's all evidence. It's just the way it gets in is different. Uh, affidavit is, is written. So it's a little more precise, a little more... Uh, um, to the point where uh, your oral evidence may take a more winding path to where you want to go. And credibility comes into it. So the judge is not only listening to your evidence, he or she's observing your body language, your demeanor. Are you arguing? Are you raising your voice? Um, are you going flush? You know, they use this to determine credibility and whether or not you're telling the truth or lying. And sometimes it's an overwhelming experience for clients. You know, they're nervous. They've never been in a courtroom before. They don't know what to expect uh, or how to answer. But that's, you know, I've been in trials where I think the case is going great. And then there's cross-examination. And then I think, oh my God, the case is going bad. Um, because the evidence and the credibility really starts to form the outcome of the trial. There's also times like we all 
seen television shows and movies where there's trials and people were waiting for some smoking gun or the aha moment, I got you. And sometimes people don't do that. Sometimes you cross-examine a witness and they just don't give you any, you know, don't give you an inch and they fight you every, every step of the way. And as a lawyer, um, you need to appreciate and as a client that sometimes that fight is hurting them more than actually giving you the inch because right. the judge is ob observing, as you said, and saying, wow, if you're protesting this much, you're being this difficult, I'm kind of believing a bit about what this other person exactly. was saying about you exactly. during the relationship. Or, you know, if you're that oppositional, maybe I shouldn't be letting you have what you want in this right. trial. Right. So sometimes there is no smoking gun, but your demeanor and how uh, cooperative you are as a witness goes a long, long, long right. way. Mm -hmm. Nafisa, can you talk a little bit about the distinction between a trial and a Rule 23 uh, proceeding? How are those two different? Mm. So what happens with the Rule 23 is that um, an application is served on a, a respondent who doesn't, uh, who chooses not to respond. Um, and then what happens is the applicant has available to them a Rule 23C, which is an affidavit for uncontested trial. So um, that's really the applicant providing the court with a written, um, written evidence of uh, the claims that they wish to pursue. Um, without the respondent having the, the, the right to really respond to it. Um, so that's really uh, in a process where the other side has decided that they're not going to follow the rules, they're not going to be filing a response to uh, the application, and the applicant can then proceed onwards. And that would go by way of affidavit. That's most right, times. yeah, exactly. Right. Um, sort of a streamlined approach. The court is of the view the person's not responding, I'm just going to listen to the one party. Right. That doesn't mean that the applicant doesn't have to provide the evidence necessary to sort of substantiate the claims, but um, it makes it a lot easier in obtaining um, the claims because uh, if you have the evidence available, the court will usually um, make the, uh, the orders right. that you're seeking. And it's not a dartboard, like a court's still going to ask you to get a pension valuation or Absolutely. maybe a, an You'll opinion as to, to the value of the home to try to get as much evidence as it can, even though Absolutely. it's coming from one side. Absolutely. So uh, income determinations or income, uh, if, if the court needs to make some child support or spousal support orders, you still need to provide the court with income, for example. So uh, accumulating as much evidence as, as necessary and, and uh, in your capacity would be best, even with an uncontested trial. Now, I've seen a lot of Rule 23 hearings where mm -hmm. the judge will say, reserve this material mm -hmm. on the respondent, sort of give them one last chance or give her one last mm -hmm. chance because a final order is going to be made. That's right. Which so, is a bit inconvenient for us because we've already served it once. Right. But they really want to try to give the other side an opportunity and notice to respond. Right. Even though the rules don't necessarily say that, I'm finding that in practicality, a lot of the judges are requiring us to serve our materials more than once sometimes. Um, and, and at times you do get a response that second time around and you're actually dealing then with, um, with the, the issues um, with the evidence. So, That's yeah. right. Oftentimes I get a question, is, so when is my trial going to take, uh, or when is it going to be scheduled? How long, why do I have to wait so long uh, to get to trial? Mm -hmm. And we, we work in a system of case management. And as Jason said earlier, it's designed to promote resolution. As you indicated earlier in the thesis, designed also to narrow the issues that are required for trial. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, you'll have a Rule 39 hearing, which is administrative, to make sure the documents are in order. Mm -hmm. Depending on whether it's an application or a motion to change, 
You may go before a dispute resolution officer or directly to a case conference where initial recommendations will be made. You'll like this, Jason, oftentimes cases are settled at case conferences. Um, <laughs> most times additional information may be required, so disclosure will be ordered. You then move on to a settlement conference, which will include formal offers to settle. Again, Jason, mm -hmm. come on, I'm talking yeah, your language here. <laughs> and uh, at that point, you're really gonna start narrowing the issues for trial. So parenting may be off the table, or the home may be sold, or the pension may be valued. Then you go to something called a trial management conference. And this is where you list the issues for trial, your witnesses, the judge tries to estimate or guesstimate how many days of trial time is going to be required. We need to talk about expert witnesses, make sure the reports are served in accordance with the rules. Last time I checked, it was 90 days to serve an expert report in advance of trial. Then you get put on one of these trial lists that you talked about in the FISA. So you're going to be sitting in the May sittings or perhaps the November sittings. So this case management takes time. Each step usually involves uh, a few months at least before you come back to court. So you can be a year and a half, two years out before you get to trial. Then when you get to trial, you're put on the list. It's not first come, first serve. Um, Jason, you're a child protection lawyer. Most uh, cases of urgency or children go first. Property cases go later. Correct. Um, so there's a lot of case management and this results in the percentages that we see in terms of resolution. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I agree. I mean, um, in terms of, um, you know, why people resolve, a lot of times it's because they can't um, afford to go on um, or they run out of, of fuel. Um, so sometimes I get asked the questions, um, you know, do I have to pay for the judge um, in a trial? And the answer to that is no, absolutely not. The judge is um, paid by the government, you um, show up and um, you have your, your right to a day in court. But there are still expenses, so you're, there's filing fees. Of course, um, yeah. You have to pay a fee to file your trial record, you have to pay a fee to set it down, but the actual payroll of the judge and the court staff and the clerks that is free, the courtroom's provided for, for free, but you still need to pay these fees. That's right, and you also have to pay your lawyers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, ideally you pay your lawyers. We want people to be represented. It makes it more efficient. Uh, but people who cannot afford to pay for their lawyers sometimes represent themselves. That's right. Uh, oftentimes it doesn't go well uh, mm -hmm. or issues make it overlooked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and trial time's precious. You don't have, there's not a lot of it. There's three weeks. And for some reason they always put those three weeks in the middle of Remembrance Day in November mm -hmm. and the May long weekend in May. So it's really only you know, 15 days for 14 days of trial that's time right. during those two sittings. So 28 days a year of trial time, and that's more or less it. That's all we get. Mm -hmm. They may have special sittings in the summer, yes. or some t trial time in June or July. That's usually the exception, and usually trials that do not finish in the sittings get carried over to those yeah. special sittings. Yeah, you might you might get um, lucky and get pulled in one of those, but the May November ones, the the normal expectation of when you would go and. That time is precious, so uh, having uh, someone who's self-represented that might take longer than necessary for the trial means right. someone else isn't getting heard at all, uh, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate. So you know, a lot of people uh, want to uh, um, 
know what they should wear uh, when they go to trial. Um, Don't you wear your outlaw t-shirt when yes, you're testifying? Definitely okay. show up with, 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 with wording on your shirt that would upset the judge. No, I'm, in all seriousness, you know, you're, you're trying to make a good impression. So it's, it's almost like a job interview. So, you know, you would show up in, in, in what you would hope is uh, looking as professional as possible and making sure that you're making that good impression on the judge. Um, you're asking them to help you with something. So they would ideally not help someone if they're offended by the way they look or isn't, doesn't care about their, uh, their, their, um, what they're wearing. So we tell people, look, you know, uh, don't show up wearing sunglasses or hats. Uh, just, you know, you're not, not, not going to be allowed to chew gum in there. Um, you just need to be um, as presentable as possible um, so that uh, um, a judge says, uh, this is someone uh, I don't have a reason why I may not want to help. Those biases come in. Uh, we're all human. And, uh, um, you know, those impressions matter. The advice I give is uh, be respectful but be comfortable. So don't wear the shirt where you're choking out because the collar is too small and you haven't worn that shirt in 10 years. Mm -hmm. You're going to be on the stand. You're going to be in the courtroom. So you want to be comfortable. You don't want to be twitching because... Um, you're wearing clothes that don't fit uh, and I you know I've had a clients show up at court with uh, tuxedo jackets and uh, a tie and it wasn't the most styling look but it impressed the judge because he is making an effort to show respect to the court and even though um, things weren't matching and it may not have been in style he had made an effort to show respect to the court and I think that went a long way and I think, um, you know, also with what you're wearing to trial, it, it's your demeanor really also, right? The judge is looking at all of it, your clothing, how you're sitting, how you're reacting. Um, so if you're um, very aggressive or if you're getting very emotional, all of those cues um, the judge is looking at. So just be aware that, you know, you're being watched. Right. I often get asked the question, will my children be required to testify? Uh, courts hate this. Uh, they do not want to see children showing up at court for mom and dad's divorce hearing. Um, there's tools we can use to find their views and preferences. We can get a voice of the child, ch child report. We can get an office of the children's lawyer report. We can have an assessment done. Uh, so generally speaking, um, the courts are going to be very reluctant to allow a child to testify. Uh, there's sometimes adult children who want to participate in the trial. There could be a dispute over an asset or um, a property item. Again, those children could be uh, called to trial and they could be testifying, but I think the court's likely going to punish the person who brings the child into the courtroom, uh, regardless of the issue. Um, the evidence can be obtained, in my view, in, in other means. Yeah, I mean, just because a child's an, uh, an adult, say child of a marriage is now an adult, doesn't mean that you bring them in. Uh, they could be 18, they could be 22, they could be 32. Um, they're still a child, they're still a child of those two people. Right. right. And, and they're always going to see their mom and their dad that way as their mom and their dad. And making them divide loyalties, choose sides, uh, no matter what age they are, is just not appropriate. Mm -hmm. Right. And you sometimes hear judges say, um, you know, do you both want to be in the same room when your daughter gets married, or is only one of you going to be in the room? That really kind of grounds what we're doing, you know, in terms of the decisions you make going to trial, going through a divorce, and how much you drag your children into it is really going to affect your relationship with uh, that child for a long period of time. Yeah, you don't stop being a parent just because your child turns 18. Mm -hmm. That's right. You're a parent uh, till 
until you stop being a parent mm -hmm. and your life ends or their life ends, right. unfortunately, right? Um, so you go through all this process, you wait this long time, you're worried about what you're wearing, you're worried about how much it costs, and then people say, well, when do I get the decision? Like, you know, my, uh, first thing I'll say is don't don't expect to get it when the trial ends. Um, it's unlikely. The judge is going to, think of a judge as... You uh, just went through this recently on a case. I'm still waiting for the decision, but in any event... <laughs> well, you had to pull the rule book out to figure out... I did, you know, I did, I did, I did. When am I going to get this decision? How much, how much time do they have? But you don't want to upset the judge by no. somehow contacting the trial coordinator complaining, mm -hmm. yeah. because there's still a lot of discretion they are going to render their decision. If they don't have the decision, made you don't want to you want to nudge but politely nudge them right but I mean I guess you know think about it from the judge's perspective uh, they're a stranger they don't know you they don't know your kids they don't know anything about what's going on they're trying to educate themselves over a couple of days what's going on in your life and they get bombarded with a ton of information and it makes sense to you because it's your life and it makes sense to your lawyer hopefully because you're paying them and it's it's important to them but the judge has to make sense of it and sometimes it takes time for them to do that so they're going to go back and read everything that that was said they're going to go back and look at all the paperwork you gave them and you know they're going to have to look at how the law applies these things and they will want to write out that decision in most cases because they need to say, this is what I heard, this is what uh, the law says, this is what I've decided. they got to show you all their steps. And it could you be just subject take to, the very to review, end. and sometimes yes. the law could be unclear, or it could be gray, right? So they're going to have to explain why they exercise their discretion in a certain way. And they have to put it all in writing so that you can look at it and understand what they did and, and work backwards from where they, where they, where they finally ended. Um, so they have several months to do that. Uh, if it's a trial, uh, yeah, I mean... I think it's, uh, what is it, six months? Was what we were talking about? Was it nine months, I think? I think we talked about nine months, didn't right. we? Nine months, but they can ask for more time. And it uh, seems like a, a lifetime to wait for a decision. But, uh, um, you know, I guess if it's the right one, then it's it takes... worth the wait. Exactly. So uh, don't expect it when the trial ends. Don't expect it a couple of weeks after. If it's a couple of weeks after, it might be good news because it was an easy decision. If it's or it might be bad news because it was an easy decision to not give you what you wanted. Yeah. And sometimes we'll be asked, when will my witnesses be needed? Again, this is a really tough question to answer. Usually what I will do two weeks out from the trial sittings is I'll go through the case with our client. I'll meet the witnesses. We'll discuss their evidence. But we won't dive too deep into their evidence. Uh, once the trial list is called and we get a sense as to whether or not we're number one or two or we're going to be waiting to maybe the 15th or 16th case to be called, then I'll get the witnesses in again a day or two before trial to have the evidence fresh, go through the document briefs and get them ready. We have a duty to accommodate witnesses, especially expert witnesses and witnesses that are coming out of town. And we're seeing witnesses testify by Skype and electronic means when necessary. Uh, but the witnesses need to be ready to, to testify when they're called. Um, so they need to be on standby. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes I get asked, you know, who can be called as a witness? And, and really the answer to this is anyone who um, has evidence that the, the judge would want to hear. So that could be, um, you know, a friend, it could be an expert witness, it could be a doctor, any professional that's been um, involved with the family that could provide the court with third-party evidence. Um, they're under oath and, and they're really there to provide the, the judge with, um, with evidence upon which the judge will rely to make decisions. Um, so really 
I, I start thinking about witnesses early on um, and I start um, with regards to my clients, I tell them to you know, start thinking about um, how you can get this evidence in. Um, you want to narrow uh, the list of witnesses. You don't want you know, 35 witnesses all saying the same thing. You want to limit them. You want a few character witnesses, not a lot. Judges don't really like that. Um, but you also want to make sure that uh, you're getting um, the evidence that's necessary from third-party professionals um, that can provide the court with information, let's say about you know, custody and access and um, really provide the judge with all the information that they need in order to make the right decision and that's your job. Your job as um, a lawyer is to provide uh, the judge with, with those individuals that have the information that they need. We need to be mindful of hearsay. So it's yes. an out-of-court statement uh, that wasn't said by the person who made the statement. So we get these witnesses who said, well, I heard this rumor or mm -hmm. this, I heard this person tell me this about somebody else. Uh, the court's not going to receive that evidence. Mm -hmm. So the witness needs to have direct evidence with respect to whatever issue they're going to testify, whether it's the value of the car or mm -hmm. the value of the home, and they need to be qualified to give an opinion with respect to that, or what they observed with respect to parenting skills or mm -hmm. something else relevant at the trial. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the hardest parts of trials uh, I find in, in family law is really um, the, the rules of evidence and, and really understanding, you know, the exceptions to hearsay, understanding how you get business records in and all of that, um, because we don't do that many trials. And so, you know, the advice I have for, for individuals who are going to trial is to make sure you have a copy of the Evidence Act, you have um, the rules of evidence, and you understand um, what your obligations are with regards to um, getting evidence in. You have the family law rules too. Absolutely, yep. So I was saying earlier, um, that judges want to write the decision out so you can kind of see where they came from, um, why they made their decision, uh, spell it out in writing to you. And that's why sometimes it takes so long. And you know, I don't think I explained why that's so important. Um, I, I think the reason why is that people sometimes don't like the judge's decision and they say, you know, I want to appeal this. Uh, An appeal is basically saying, I think the judge got it wrong um, and I, I want someone else to either substitute their decision in for the judge or I want another trial or whatever the case may be. Generally so. it's hard to leave, get leave to f appeal a family court decision. The Court of Appeal wants these things to be final. Yes. But we always seem to see cases going to the Court of Appeal in any event. Yeah, and that's what we rely upon sometimes. Without those Court of Appeal decisions we'd have less direction on what to do in certain cases right. because you could get judges, trial judges disagreeing on things and the Court of Appeal adds a little clarity to us. Like, no, uh, this is what we think you should do. It's a higher court. So that matters. And so things are appealed and they're appealed for that reason. There might be some public interest. There might be appeal because someone says, no, I just don't like the decision. So, you and know. Appeal court decisions can give us some certainty. Yes. So if we have a client pushing the envelope or directing us or instructing us to take certain steps, we can tell them the, the appeal court has said, no, uh, this isn't going to fly. And for them to proceed further, there's probably going to be significant cost consequences because it's very likely the trial judge will follow that court of appeal decision. And, and, and if it's a higher court, yes. I mean, you, you know, basically it goes down from there. And uh, if they've made a decision, the courts below are supposed to follow it. So. The only thing we talk about is there are time limits. If there's a trial decision, you've, you've got to move quickly. You can't just sit on it forever. Um, your case starts turning into something where instead of appealing it, you're saying, okay, I gotta wait for some change to happen. And that could not happen at all, if ever. And uh, you paint yourself into a corner. So if, if you think a judge has made a mistake, if you think that you've uh, 
um, dislike your decision. Just, you know, I discuss it with my clients. We talk about options, uh, timing, etc., and uh, success. Uh, you know, probability of success, and uh, that's something that the judge's decision helps me with because they've spelled out exactly how they got there. This is what I collected. This is what I heard. This is the law. This is I'm applying it. And you know, we're all human. We make mistakes sometimes. Right. So you need that background. And if a judge doesn't put that all out there for you. It just gives you their decision. You don't know how they got it. Um, right. So uh, th that's what you're waiting for, and that helps you make your decision about whether you want to appeal it or not. And then we're adding more time as well, right? An yep. appeal, you're going to have to file a factum, an appeal book. You're going to possibly have to attend in person. So you're going to extend the life of the case by six yep. months or a year. And yep. there's an expense associated with that. Yeah, especially if you wanted a quick decision, <laughs> you're waiting a little longer for it, that's right? That's right. Mm -hmm. So what happens at the end of a trial and you know, you're successful? Do you get your legal fees paid? And that's a question that I think is a very important one. And unfortunately, there is no direct answer to it. So the, you know, if you're successful, maybe you'll get your, uh, your legal costs paid. Um, but ultimately, it's up to the judge to decide. Um, very few um, matters will get 100% um, uh, recovery of their legal fees. So it's really up to a judge to hear cost submissions and then make a decision as to whether they're going to award costs or not. Usually the winner will get some costs, but um, you know whether they're going to get all is, is up to the judge to decide. If the litigant has been, um, has acted egregiously or if there is some bad faith there, then your costs could be higher. Um, but you know, barring that, I think that um, uh, it, it's partial indemnity most times. Um, well, not most times, but I've seen very few cases where I've gotten 100% of my costs. Right. How about you, Russ? The, uh, it's an inherently discretionary process. Yes. And there's several factors that you look at. And when you say partial indemnity, that means you're going to get some of your fees, maybe 50%, mm -hmm. maybe less. Um, the, it's essentially a chance for the court to punish somebody for either acting improperly by not disclosing assets or information, by delaying the trial process, by pursuing legal issues they should not mm -hmm. have pursued, and talking a little bit about you know the decisions from the Court of Appeal. Uh, if it's mm -hmm. incredibly egregious, they can make findings of bad faith. Mm -hmm. So if you're in court for some other or improper purpose, such as to cause harm to your spouse, to increase your spouse's legal fees, or simply just to be a bad person because you're upset for mm -hmm. it because of events, the way events have unfolded during the course of the marriage, mm -hmm. um, there's a very high likelihood uh, the court's going to make a cost order against you as a sanction. Mm -hmm. And if you're if you're found to have conducted uh, acted in bad faith, mm -hmm. that triggers a whole section of the rules which enables the court to consider full recovery costs. Right. I think it's really important also to remember that uh, you, you should be doing offers to settle because judges will want to see, you know, how did you attempt to resolve your, your, your trial, what were, what were your offers, and they use that as a basis upon which to sort of award costs. They look at your offer to settle and they, they look to see how closely you've met that offer. So when you're going to trial, make sure that you're serving your offer to settle prior to uh, the beginning of trial and that you have something that you feel is reasonable and um, hopefully you beat that uh, that offer. Right. 
And there's special rules just for offers to settle. You want to get them served on time, get them served in advance. When we're dealing with a particularly vexatious litigant, and we know they're not going to accept anything mm -hmm. because they want to have a hearing, they want to increase the expense, uh, we may provide a very low ball offer to settle that um, borders borderlines on uncomfortable for the client because mm -hmm. it's so good to the other spouse. But that's not designed for the other spouse. That is designed for the judge. Because if we are successful and if the trial does last 14, 16, 18 days, mm -hmm. and we can then at the conclusion of the trial say, this is what we offered to settle, it's going to make um, that person look very favorable when it comes to their request for costs. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking about settlement. Nafisa brought it up. <laughs> what, what I tell my clients in costs is, is do not expect to get them. They're, they're not the norm. Um, and it's discretionary, as you said. And uh, yes, behavior and all those things matter. But you know, the, the kicker is, is that sometimes you can't pursue any further litigation until you pay those costs. Mm -hmm. Uh, the punishment element comes in, mm -hmm. and that's it's designed that way sometimes that a judge says, you've been a difficult litigant, you're going to have to put your money where your mouth is next time you want to come back here, because when it's child-related, when it's support-related, those things can be reviewed, and if they're reviewed at a future date and you haven't paid your last, you know, costs award, you can't review potentially. So it's a way of saying, look, you know, if, if, if I'm going to punish you, it's because you've acted really bad, and sometimes the judge says, no, I'm not going to punish you, I'm not going to stop you from reviewing the custody arrangements or, or the uh, support arrangements just because I think you're being difficult here. So it's sometimes what a judge will use to, to hammer you, but sometimes they say, look, I, I need to be hands off and realize these people are going to have more litigation in the future potentially. I'm not going to handcuff anyone before they walk in and not paying their legal, you know, the last costs award. So it's something total discre totally discretionary and because of the nature of litigation and that there could be a second or third or fourth round, something judges think hard about deciding what mm -hmm. to do with. Yeah. Just on that point, uh, experienced trial lawyers will know the cost consequences and when they see a good offer come in, uh, they're going to encourage their client to seriously consider that offer. So the other note of on cost is the flip side of that is true. If a court makes a strong cost order, they may say you're not allowed to bring this back to court until the costs have been paid and that's to either sanction the person and or prevent them from returning the matter to court um, because they've been perhaps labeled a vexatious litigant and they're now using public resources in terms of court time that could be better spent on other cases waiting to go to trial. Mm -hmm. So why do trials cost so much? This is a question all three of us get. The analogy I would use is sort of like a classic Harley Davidson that you see on the road. So generally speaking, from what I understand, these motorcycles, you have to do three hours of maintenance for every hour that you ride on the Harley-Davidson. So I use that analogy to explain the time involved in going to trial. If you're going to have one hour of cross-examination of a client, it's going to take your lawyer about three hours of prep just for that one hour, just as a rule of thumb. Um, you need to prepare all your documents in advance. We need to prepare a trial record, which goes 30 days prior to trial. We need to prepare an exhibit book of all the documents that are going to be presented at trial with multiple copies. We need to prepare case books and books of authority, which is the law that we want the judge to rely on. We need to prepare a roadmap for the judge, leading him or her through the evidence, a draft order indicating what you want the final outcome to look like. 
we may need to do additional research if it's a novel point of law. And there's other documents we need to prepare to get the matter trial ready. Updated financial statements, net family property statements, all this goes into trial prep. And then we need to prepare the clients and their witnesses. Oftentimes we'll get called to trial, the trial coordinator to call us up and say you're starting at two o'clock tomorrow. Great, we get everybody there. The case doesn't start because the judge's morning matter is still going on. So when we do go to trial, we could spend time waiting for our trial to start. Or we may be directed to go do an exit pre-trial or a mid-trial conference with another judge to discuss settlement, which is good. I see Jason nodding his head. Um, but there's lots of unforeseen events that occur, can occur during the trial, which is seriously going to affect the estimate. I did a trial in Newmarket. We were estimating three to four days. Day number two, uh, there was a fire in the cells that they put out, but they had to evacuate the entire courthouse. So now I'm standing in the parking lot in my robes at 11 a.m. Uh, they got it under control and then they had to re-enter the courthouse. So now we have 500 people, most of whom have to go through security again. Our trial didn't start back up to 3 or 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And then the judge was ready to take a break and come back the next day. Uh, so it's, it's funny, but it's sad because this is a very expensive endeavor for clients. But it just shows how unpredictable trials can be. So closing comments. Um, do you want to start, Nafisa? Um, I think that my closing comments are that um, if you're going to be um, going to trial, um, make sure that um, you're comfortable with the lawyer that you're, you've retained. Make sure that um, you prepare and help your lawyer help you. It's very important for you to understand that um, your lawyer is there to help you um, navigate this, the, the court system and, and get you the results that you, you want, but that you have to make sure that you're providing them with the required documents, you're coming to your appointments, you're meeting with them, and you're also as engaged as they are in, in the process and in, get, in getting the results that you require. I think to add to that, I trust your lawyer because, you know, the idea is that um, your evidence can come out in many different ways and uh, you most likely will be cross-examined and your message will be, uh, the waters will be muddied. So you want a message that is clear and concise to a judge. Go back to that thing I said earlier, which is it's a stranger, knows nothing about you or your kids or your family. And you've got to get that message across concise, in a concise matter that makes sense to them. Simplicity is bliss. And if you're going to confuse the issues and start talking about things that make no sense, it's all gonna be misread by a judge. So trust your lawyer, how they want you to package that information, how they want to present it. Um, you know, they're not going to tell you exactly what to say, but they're going to tell you what is important. You need to listen to that and make sure you don't go off on tangents where you stick your foot in your mouth sometimes. Yeah, I view trials as a default position. Uh, sadly, both spouses are losers if the case goes to trial because of the expense associated uh, to pick up on Jason's vein. Uh, in all seriousness, settlement is important. You're going to keep money in your family unit that can be used for your children's college or university education. You may be saving a family business that can be used to generate income for the family if we don't have to sell it. Uh, I try to avoid trials all the time. Having said that, we come across litigants who will stop at nothing 
and who simply want to litigate and cause their spouse harm, financial harm, emotional harm, which we really didn't get into too much today, the emotional costs of going to trial. Mm -hmm. You know, the financial costs are significant, uh, but to have to testify and be cross-examined and have, you know, your dirty laundry aired out, um, you know, we can all think of a million bad parenting decisions we probably made at some point in time. Well, ho hopefully not a million, but um, it's a very stressful uh, process to go through. It's hard on the lawyers, it's especially hard on the clients. It's very difficult for a judge. You know, you're going to decide where these children are going to live. And you're giving up your power. You know, you're, you're letting a stranger decide, uh, this is what my relationship with the kids are going to look like. Mm -hmm. So if you can avoid it, that would be my takeaway. Uh, but if you're involved in a case that requires a trial, and many cases do, unfortunately, hire an experienced uh, family law lawyer, follow their advice. Uh, if they've done trials before, they're giving you advice based on their experience. It could be based on their trial judge. It could be based on where the court's located. Um, every court has a certain feel to it, and every judge's take a different opinion as to what the evidence looks like. So I want to thank Nafisa and Jason for their comments today. It's been very insightful. I know that our clients and the public are going to find this podcast very interesting and useful, especially if they're going to trial. And I want to thank everybody for listening today. Thank you. Thank you.